Well, peace be with you, church. Thanks for helping us out with that. Uh, if you run into one of these guys, encourage them. That's a big deal for them to move up into um, new spaces, new endeavors. So um, to get us back on track, get our minds back on track, today is kind of a last sermon in our sermon series, Essentials of Rest. And so I just kind of want to really quickly remind us of just what we've been doing, what we've been exploring for a month. And, and that is for basically for a month that we've been exploring what it means to live lives out of rest and as opposed to living our life out of a deep restlessness. And um, the rest that we've been describing, the, the, the kind of rest I think the Bible is talking about is a rest that's more nuanced than just like uh, a, a full night of sleep or a charged battery, an energized body, although those are great things, and I hope that you have those. Um, the rest that the Bible's talking about, the, the rest that I've been trying to talk about, is really about a peace of mind, a peace in the heart that brings a kind of calm, a kind of resilience to the difficulties of life, the, the inevitable difficulties of life. Um, it's this prevailing belief, that's what I would say, to live out of this prevailing belief that no matter what sins you have, and I have, and no matter what sufferings you have, because we have them, we have them both, and they weigh us down at times. No matter what sins and sufferings that you have, it's this prevailing belief that all will be well, um, that God did not give up on us in Christ, and that he's not going to give up on you. He's going to keep sustaining and loving you and guiding you and leading you into ever deeper places of maturity. And that in some unique, mysterious way, he's going to use those sins and those sufferings uh, for your good. And so, and we want to try to cling to that truth. And so the opposite, if this is helpful for you, really the opposite of rest um, isn't so much just like a place of exhaustion, because sometimes you can be totally physically exhausted and, and in some ways you can feel good, like you've poured yourself out in a good way. So I'm not necessarily talking about, the opposite of rest isn't so much physical exhaustion as much as it's this deep, living out of this deep, penetrating place of anxiety, worry and fear, uh, a, a deep sense of discontent, you know, a deep restlessness. Uh, the opposite of rest is this like pernicious belief that that my belief or that, that sorry that my fulfillment or your fulfillment in life your the fulfillment of deep peace and hope and these sorts of things will be found in your achievements that's a lie your deep sense of fulfillment will not be found in achievements or it won't be found in your um, your ability to, do, to 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 put out hard work um, to gain some kind of a reputation, to gain some kind of portfolio. It won't be found, deep fulfillment won't even be found in a lot of really great comforting possessions. It just won't. And so the opposite of rest um, is really that. It's, it's, it's like getting out of that place. Um, the opposite of rest is living out that kind of life. It's the same way in like, and somebody's like on the boat one time, Jesus was describing the opposite of faith, not really as doubt. It's not what he said. Really, for Jesus, as strangely as this might sound, the opposite of faith is fear. Um, it's counterintuitive. So, you know, that's what the opposite of rest is. And so spiritual and emotional rest is, what, this is what I would say, it's a gift for you to receive. Spiritual rest 
in Christ is something to fall into. To, it's something to hold, uh, to behold, to look at, to listen to. It's not something that you earn, okay? It's so important to get. But ironically, in this series, and I want to acknowledge this whole series, in a sense, has really been about disciplines, <laughs> you know? Disciplines, if you will, of rest, you know, like disciplines of, of meditating on the word, um, disciplines of, of right, you know, kind of vigilance towards your money and your time and being aware of the cultural pressures that are coming at you. Um, and at a glance, when we talk about disciplines, at a glance, that sounds counterintuitive because it's like, well, wait, I thought you just said rest isn't about something um, that we work to achieve. Well, it's not, but the essential disciplines that we've been discussing aren't about increasing your own inner power or something like that, increasing your own will. They're, they're about your attention. So when we talk about, or I talk about disciplines of rest, what I'm talking about is putting things into your life that help you gain attention. Can't gain attention not only on what the world is doing to you, like where the world is dragging you, but also where the good news of Christ is. And do you have it always in view? Are you keeping both in view? And so it's not so much about adding a bunch of more things into your life, but it's more like removing and decluttering things from your life. Uh, removing the religious workaholism that you get stuck in, that I get stuck in sometimes. It's about removing worldly distraction that wants to drag you away. That's why, like, when you think about it this way, if you've ever read the, the book of Hebrews, particularly the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, three and four, the, the idea of rest comes back up, and the, the author spends a lot of time on the idea of rest. And if you go back there, you'll see he talks about it as something you enter. It's like a room. It's like choose to enter into this room. It's already there. It's waiting for you. Uh, he'll say, it's like something that you listen to. It's like something that you hear. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So it's something that you enter. It's something that you hear. It's the news that we hear and, and encourages us. And, and he kind of sums up this idea that it, it, to enter into this rest of Jesus means to draw near to the throne of grace, to receive his mercy and his kindness, his help. If you need a visual, I'll give you a couple that might be helpful. So for instance, I like to walk my dog and my dog's a puller on the, on the leash, like a hard, you know, aggressive puller on the leash. And so I'd got these, one of these gentle leads. I don't know if you've ever seen these. And the way it works is it just puts this ever so soft, like gentle, like harness basically over her um, nose right here at the bridge. And so if she pulls, what it does is the, um, the pressure of that pulls her face right back to me. Okay, um, doesn't hurt her. Um, can't say that she loves it, uh, but um, it, what it does is it directs her attention right back this way as opposed to going where she wants to go. And so it slows her down. It brings her attention back to me. Disciplines of rest are like that. It's putting things into your life that draw you back to Jesus and to say, stop, stop striving so much to get so much that you think you're gonna, that's gonna fulfill you. It's not. Or like, think of it this way and do not, well, yeah, don't, I'm not a beach lifeguard. Okay. I don't, I don't work for the coast guard, but I have read that riptides are very dangerous and riptides. Um, matter of fact, I think riptides, 
uh, threaten uh, people far more than sharks do, if that tells you anything. And, um, you know, there are these currents, I don't know exactly how they work, but they're these currents that you can get stuck in and they want to drag you out to sea. Well, here's the counterintuitive nature to a riptide that I've read. The reason why riptides are so dangerous is when people get caught in them, they fight back against it. It wears them out and it drags them under. That's how you get drowned in a riptide. So, believe it or not, when you get caught in a riptide, if, heaven forbid, you get caught in a riptide, do you know what you're supposed to do? Surrender. You're supposed to surrender to it. And you're supposed to stop fighting and let it drag you out. And that what, so at some point, it will dump you back into a place of calm. And then you can swim back to shore. Double check that before you try it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read some weird things, and I was like, well, look at that. Um, so, but I'm pretty sure that's how it works. And so the gospel, working out, living out the gospel of rest, it's like, that's what I've been, it's like right there, riptide, that's what it is. The world is like this riptide that wants to drag you down and drown you. And the gospel is saying, no, you don't have to do that. But it's really more about surrender. It's not about law. It's not about adding a bunch of hard things into your life. That's not what it is. Um, the work of entering rest is a work of lashing yourself to the throne of Christ's love. Put whatever you can into your life that keeps you fixed on his love and his forgiveness and his kindness to you and that you don't have to prove yourself. And so it's much more about surrendering, giving up control than it is about striving for more of it. That's why the, the disciplines of rest either lead you, and, 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 and Mike said this earlier, but disciplines of rest should always lead you back into communion and prayer with God or they're leading you into law and law kills. So if you put things, disciplines into your life, whatever they are, whether they're ones that I encouraged or ones many, many, many more that you can read about, if you put those into your life to get into a place of rest and you're not thinking about how they're leading you back to a place of attention upon the gospel and prayer and communion and sitting in his presence and basking in what, he, what he's done for you and his work, then it's leading you into law. It's gonna lead to, to crushing you or or it's just gonna to lead to you feeling great about yourself and inflating your ego and inflating your pride, which will then hurt you in community. And people definitely will not want to be around you. That's what happens. And so um, that's what we're trying to think about, um, that how can we lash ourselves to the throne of grace and remember that Christ has defeated sin and death on our behalf and, and is offering us salvation freely out of the overflow of his heart, freely. If remembering that, clinging to that isn't the direction disciplines take you, you're just putting a yoke on your life that's gonna crush you. And so we've already brought this out. I've brought this out, but I'm gonna throw Matthew uh, 11, 29 back up. But we've brought this out a couple times. But when Jesus invited us to come to him and find soul rest, we are explicitly told by Jesus to take his yoke upon us and learn from him. To learn from him because he's gentle and lowly in heart. He's gentle and lowly in heart. 
And so rest is found in drawing near to him and taking up his way of living life. That's what he's saying. He's not just getting into his presence. Don't just take up like company with Jesus. But when you take up company with Jesus, the idea is, is that as you take up company with Jesus, you're taking up his way of living. You, you see that? And so it's not just like getting into the presence of Jesus means that you repent and he forgives you. That is true, but it's more than that. It's that you get into the company of Jesus, you see his loving kindness and mercy, you repent, and then you take up his way of life gradually. And so the idea is that as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, you're studying Jesus. And so you're not just studying the things that he taught and said, you're, you're studying the things that he did. So, you know, when you look at what, how Jesus lived his life in the gospels, one of the fascinating rhythms of rest that we see in him that I just don't think you get enough conversations. And so we're going to talk about uh, this morning is that, and that's this, the one, uh, the one who saves you, the one who saves us, Jesus, the one who was so committed to being approachable, to being gentle and lowly within community was also committed to going off alone by himself to a quiet place to pray. The one who came for people and invited people to come to him, the one that was so unbelievably approachable to all different walks of life was also committed to going off and sneaking off at times alone to pray. To prove what I mean, to just kind of show you in case you're not familiar, for our reading this morning, I'll just give you kind of a a survey of these moments. And so you you don't need to grab your Bible because I'm going to be jumping around too much for you. And so it'll just be up on the screens. But I'll just read some of these examples, these brief examples for you. First one's Luke 6, 12 and 13. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Mark 1, 35 through 37. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. Luke 5, 15 through 16. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Matthew 14, 22 and 23. This is just after the feeding of the 5,000. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Matthew 26, the end of his life, 36, 34. Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. 
And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, there it is again, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. These are just the moments we know of, right? Imagine the moments that we don't. Imagine how many more moments where Jesus would go off. Numerous times the word desolate places is mentioned. That word in the Greek can mean wilderness. It can also just mean lonely place. There's other places in the scripture. It's literally used to describe a lonely place, a place where someone is alone and by themselves. Why did Jesus do that? That's the question. Why does he do this that I just read? All these little moments for us. Well, we're told he went off to pray. That's what we know. But we also know that prayer wasn't something that he only did alone. Prayer, he, he regularly prayed in the company with his friends. And so why the solitude? Why the secrecy? Why the quiet places? I mean, we can infer some good guesses, like even within the, the this little bits that I read. And if you were to go to all of those passages and read kind of what's happening before, maybe what's happening after, you might get some kind of an idea. So we can infer some good guesses. We can look at the context surrounding it and, and think of some good possibilities. And I'll just list a few, right, that, that I thought through. And you might think of more, but that Jesus, he, Jesus sought solitude and quiet before he made really big decisions. It's probably true. He sought solitude and silence to model caution around being known and famous for all the wrong reasons, like when the crowds were growing. He did this to keep his mind and heart grounded in what his priorities were, to remember his identity as a son. And he did it probably, he did it obviously, sorry, in, at the end here in Matthew 26, he did it in the midst and in preparation for horrible and terrible suffering. He snuck away to pray. All of these, I think, would be instructive for any of us to think about and reflect upon and, and absorb, I think, into our own lives. But let me just say something that I don't say very often in, in a sermon. Um, Honestly, as I study, have studied this for quite some time, um, the reason that Jesus went off to solitude and silence so often to go up and to be alone, to be in quiet, the truth is, I, I just, I don't know. Like the, the apostles never wrote down a reason. Um, the truth is that Jesus' deliberate practice of quiet and solitude, I think is shrouded in some mystery. Uh, but ultimately, I bring it out uh, to highlight what I just think is so obvious and you might laugh at it, but it's just, I think if Jesus needed to go off sometimes to be still, to be quiet, to be alone in prayer with his father, we surely need the same. I don't think we should overcomplicate it. If Jesus, the son of God, 
feels it necessary to occasionally, periodically, in the rhythms of his life, to go off by himself to a lonely place, to be still, to be quiet, to reflect, to think, and to pray, and to commune with his heavenly Father, we surely need to do the same. Here's a word from Eugene Peterson on kind of why, why this might be necessary for us. He says, we live too much on the surface. All of us do. Our culture in conspiracy with the devil does everything it can to keep us preoccupied with things like making sure the images we see in our mirrors are acceptable, getting across the street without being hit by a car, and keeping food on our tables and gasoline in our cars. With only peripheral murmurs of dissent, the dominant voices say, consume, hurry, buy, don't think, don't be quiet, and above all, don't pray, except in emergencies. Here's a thesis for you. What if the devil working in and through the culture around you wants your life not just full of evil, which I think the devil working through the culture does. He doesn't just want your life full of evil. He doesn't just want your life consumed with more shopping, more spending, and more saving. Wants your life not just full of busyness. I think that's true. He wants your life full of worry and, and anxiety. But what if, what if the devil working in the culture just wants your life noisy? Noisy. Something so subversive, something you'll just not think about and pay attention to. What if that's one of his primary ways of getting at you? It's noise. It'll never be on the radar, right? Something that we're just not going to read books about and something that we're just not going to write blogs about. Noise. What if that's his way? Because, if, because maybe if it's noisy enough, maybe we won't stop and reflect, we won't stop and think, and ultimately we won't stop and pray. I live in the same world that you do, and I, I live um, with many of the same rhythms as you, and I know that many of us are just not good at going off alone to be quiet, to be still, to simply be present to God with only our thoughts and our struggles and our, just our internal longings. Like we're not good at that. I'm not great at it either. And I want you to know that. I'm not here to talk about this in such a way that it's a judgment on you in terms of how bad we are at this. I'm in this struggle with you. I know the demons of solitude and silence very well and I struggle in this discipline. So why do we struggle? Like, this is all I really want to do here is just spend a little time talking about why do we struggle? What's going on inside of us? Let's just bring some honest reflection upon it and say, what's going on in us? And, and, and sitting still, being quiet, and praying alone. And then I also hope to kind of talk about the good news, though, that enters into that space in hopes that you'll see to push through and go for it anyway. There's three struggles that I've been thinking about and, three, and, 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 and there could be many more that you might come up with, but these are just three. One, I, I think it's hard for us to go off alone and be quiet. I think it's hard because we don't like the thoughts of our frailty. I think our frailty 
comes up when we're alone and when we're quiet. Dallas Willard said this, silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does, throwing us upon the stark realities of our life. It reminds us of death, which will cut us off from this world and leave only us and God. And in that quiet, what if there turns out to be very little to just us and God? Think what it says about the inward emptiness of our lives if we must always turn on the tape player or radio to make sure something is happening around us. You see, when we sit alone in the quiet, we allow our truest fears to surface. It's not that maybe we allow it, but it just happens. Things like the fact that we're just mere creatures who have limitations and limited time left before we take our last breath and meet Jesus. Those are the things that surface when we're alone and when we're quiet. That's why it's so unnerving. Right? That's why we struggle so much to sit alone and sit quiet. Confronting our limitations and, and our numbered days is the place actually where wisdom cultivates in your life. That's Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days so that we might have a heart, grow a heart of wisdom. That's Psalm 90. There's wisdom found in recognizing your frailty and that you have numbered days. But that scares us, I know. It's in this place where we realize this, that we entered this world alone and we will leave it alone, except with God. And so our souls need to deal with him and hear from him now, today, today. When I'm alone and quiet, I give myself space to recognize that although this body is fading and dying uh, quicker than I might like to think about. As this thing, this shell, as this thing starts to fade and deteriorate and atrophy, I'm being inwardly renewed by God. It's like my maturity is also taking off. That's the, that's the paradox of it. That's, the, that's really the work that God is doing in us. My physical exhaustion, my physical weakness humbles me back to a place of neediness. It reminds me of this. This is what I'm just getting at. Although it's difficult to sit alone and to be quiet because we think about our death. We think about, ooh, what's that ache, <laughs> right? The more noise in my life, the less I have to recognize the ache, the thing that keeps nagging at me. But when I start to think about those things and the fear starts to well up in us, the reality is I can also remember, wait a second, yeah, that's, of course, I live in a broken world and I'm a broken creature. And one day I will be renewed and resurrected. And you know what? Like, I'm not God. You're not God. And you don't have to be. You only have to be human-sized, as we say at the staff all the time. Human-sized. And it's in that space you remember that. And so we remember that our frailty is just something that is difficult for us to, to think about, but it's also something that then draws us back to God and we start to cling to him again. Two, it's hard because for so many of us, deep down, although we may have some connections, many connections, we still feel deeply lonely. I know this. I know this, I know many of you in this room right now still feel deeply lonely, you feel unheard, you feel unseen, 
maybe even unloved. And so when, when you read about or you hear about or you think about the idea of solitude and silence, you think, no way, man, that's the last thing I need. I need somebody to look at me and, and talk to me. I need somebody to listen to me. That would be wonderful, you know? Maybe that's where you are. But let me be clear about something as I talk about this, because I've had conversations with Christians that I recognize right away when I start talking about the value of solitude and silence, they get defensive. They get immediately like this, no, man's not meant to be alone. Whoa, 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 hang on a second. Jesus didn't slip away to isolate and pity. That's not what he was doing. He, 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 he slipped away to listen and to talk to his father. Isolation is about escape. Isolation is always about running away from something. Isolation is about escape. Solitude is about deliberate engagement. That's the difference. That's the difference that I'm talking about. Isolation is about avoiding conflict. It's about avoiding problems. It's, a, it's about hard truths. That's why people, when, when they're dealing with deep conflict, they're dealing with sins, they're dealing with things that they need to confess or confront, or, that's why sometimes you see that they just disappear. That's isolation. I'm not talking about isolation. I'm talking about solitude, deliberate practice of getting away in secrecy to engage with God. Solitude is about engaging in secrecy with God so that we can enter back into conflicts, problems, and hard truths with full hearts that are loved by God. It's in solitude and quiet we bring our community conflicts to God, both our sins and our sufferings. Here's what, um, this is great, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who, write, who wrote the book Life Together, a book about community, <laughs> right? Here's what he says. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Along with the day of the Christian family fellowship together, there goes the lonely day of the individual. This is as it should be. The day together will be unfruitful without the day alone, both for the fellowship and for the individual. The mark of solitude is silence, as speech is the mark of community. Silence and speech have the same inner correspondence and difference, as do solitude and community. One does not exist without the other. Right speech comes out of silence, and right silence comes out of speech. That's why the poet uh, Rilke said that a good marriage is two people who are the guardians of the other's solitude. That's beautiful. That when you guard the solitude of your spouse and you recognize that giving them space to be alone with God allows them to enter with me and interact with me in an appropriate manner. Imagine the church. If when we gathered, it was after a week, like on a, when we gathered on a Sunday, it's after a week where we were spending little pockets and moments of being alone, quiet with God, dealing with our frailty and our sins. And then we came back together and we were much more careful about how we spoke, much more careful about how we looked at each other. I would say in some degree, many of the problems within community happens because of our lack of quiet. Right speech comes out of right silence. 
Third, it's hard because there isn't anything of substance for us to master, <laughs> to perform, or achieve. In other words, if try this if you haven't ever kind of entered into this space. Go sit alone. Go sit on a park bench. Go sit in your backyard. Go wherever. Go sit alone. Be still. Be really quiet for a while. Don't do anything. And it won't be long before you wonder, am I even doing this right? You know? Once you get past like the thumb twitches, right? Because by the way, I'm not, I'm talking about going alone and being still and not being on your phone, just for clarification. And once you get past the like, oh, I shouldn't reach for it. Once you get past that, then it's like you sit there and it's like, okay, I'm just going to gauge with God in quiet. Um, and maybe you say your prayers and you say them uh, re relatively briefly, which is great because Jesus said, don't heap up a lot of words. You don't need to do that. And then you're going to go, well, I'm still going to sit here. And it's like, you're going to sit there. And then you, at some point you're going to go, I don't, I think, I think I'm terrible at this. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> right? Like if you've, if you haven't done it, try it. And that's one of the feelings that you'll get. You'll, your sense of incompetence will come flooding in, is my point. Good. That's the point. You're not failing. It's a paradox, but it's like the feelings of failure is a, is, is a feeling of opportunity, and it's where maturity is. It's just it, that getting alone with God strips us of our temptations to perform for God and to perform for others. Why do you think that it is that Jesus, when he talked about prayer, said, go to your room and shut the door and go in secret and do it? Don't perform for people. And you don't need to perform for God. And silence and solitude is one of these things where it's a, really, it's a real struggle because you're used to performing. I think it's why the catalog of scripture is scattered with these repeated commands to be still, to be quiet, to wait on God. Here's a sample. Psalm 46, 11, you probably know it. Be still and know that I am God. It's like, what? Why? What does that do for me? You know the, in, you know the word in Hebrew, the word for be still, you know what it means? It literally means, it literally means let go of your grip. Let go of your need to control and master things and see and look at God. Lamentations 3, 25 and 26, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What? Quietly. Isaiah 30, 15, only in returning to me and resting in me will you be saved. And quietness and confidence is your strength. The immediate line after that is, but you'll have none of it. <laughs> Why would quietness with God bring confidence and strength? Well, here's, please hear this, because this is really all I really want to get across. Why would quietness with God bring confidence and strength? Not because you sense your own abilities and power, because you sense your lack. You sense your lack and you get in touch with your need and you get in touch with his mercy. It's why um, Henry Nouwen, who wrote, has a little book called The Way of the Heart. He, it's pretty much all about silence and solitude for the most part, but he called silence and solitude, not a work of therapy, but a work of conversion. 
You get converted there. That's where real transformation happens. Because, and here's why, you see, when we cut out the noise, we allow ourselves to encounter not only our sin, like the, the sins of our lives start to well up, our, our awareness of them starts to, it starts to come into view, but also we start to recognize his mercy. We start to recognize not just our sins, but also our savior. And that's these two, th- two things, friends, these are the most, um, and this might sound challenging to you, but these are the two of the most, if not the most important realities of your life right now. And I, I, I just, I don't care what phase of life you're in. These are the two most important things of your life, your sin and the savior. Your sin and his love and forgiveness for you. Those are the two most important things in your life. Your awareness to those two things. If you lose touch with those two things, then you are going to feel deeply restless. But if you are always in contact with these two things, that's where conversion happens over and over and over again. This is where transformation happens over and over and over again. Your sin and Jesus' willingness to love, forgive, and carry you through whatever you face. Noise, whatever the noise is, and there's lots of forms of noise, right? Whether it's your phone, TV, constant social ups, obligations, what, et cetera, whatever the noise that you, you and I all, we have it. They're not evil in and of themselves, but they keep us distracted from the sins and sufferings that are keeping us restless, anxious, scared, and angry. But when we're alone and quiet, we're, we're, what happens is, is, and I kind of described this already, but we're left with our insecurities. They well up, you know? We're left with our insufficiencies. We're, we're, we're left with our real selves, like the mask comes off. We're left to actually see and feel and recognize the real person that we are, not the manufactured one that we work so hard to put out for others. It's in that place, in this place of quiet, solitude, and prayer that I begin to feel that feeling of, oh gosh, um, I should be more mature than this by now. <laughs> you know, you ever have that feeling? I, I was just talking uh, to my friends in the back earlier before the service because they were like, oh, it's your birthday this week. And I was like, yeah, I'm 41. And you know, you know, you know um, what's hard about my age, where my age is, or that's how I experienced it at 41, is I, I feel like, I thought I, thought I was going to, I thought I was going to be more mature than this by now. You know, like I, I thought, you know, 20 years ago that when I get to this space, I'd be like really mature and have it all figured out. And the reality is, is that I feel very much the opposite. And as I feel like, gosh, I have still, I have still an incredible amount to learn and to think about. But what I think the gospel is reminding me of is, yeah, that's the place of maturity. When you start to lose the illusion, you start to, you start to lean in and embrace the incredible amount of incompetencies that you have, the incredible amount of pathetic slowness that is still in your life. That is exactly, I think, where God wants us to be place where we enter into the the temple, we enter into the church and we're not looking at other people going, gosh, thank God, thank you, Lord Jesus, that I'm not like him. (sighs) Thank you that I'm not like her, but oh, have mercy on me. I'm so incompetent. That's the beginning of real prayer. 
That's the beginning. When I start to feel like, gosh, I really stink at quiet and prayer. I can't pray for two stinking minutes without thinking of the chores around the house. That's pathetic. And that place, when that feeling comes on, I want to encourage you, friends, that's the place of real prayer because you're actually starting to get honest. You're not performing anymore. It's when we go to God feeling our own incompetence, well, that's where honesty and our true selves begin to show up. Prayers that are ugly, disheveled, clumsy, shattered, scattered, dark. These are generally the truest expressions of our hearts because, man, that's what our hearts are. Your heart is hurt. Your heart is prideful. Your heart is fragile. Your heart is noisy and cluttered. Your heart is all of these things. And when you just bring that stuff and you show up with that to God, that's where real prayer is. God has made it clear that he meets us. He, he meets struggling weak ones, not the put together, performing, polished people. And so look, if when you go and you enter into quiet and solitude and you struggle in your prayers and you feel so incompetent, I want to encourage you, you're doing it right. Here's uh, the desert father, St. John of the Cross wrote this. In general, the soul makes greater progress when it least thinks, most frequently when it imagines that it's losing. That's the counterintuitive nature of it. The gospel struggles to break through the noise when you're succeeding in feeling self-sufficient. But man, the gospel speaks right into you when you feel like a failure. It's okay for you to get in touch with that. Solitude gets you in touch with your deeper sense of failure, um, which then connects you back to God's incredible loving kindness and mercy in Christ. And so look, here's the last thing I'll say as we come, get ready to come to the table, but this is just get alone when you can because I know that this might be new to some of you. Starting small is fine, like really small, 30 minutes here, an hour here, work your way up to half a day. Uh, it, depending on your phase or season of life, you might be able to do a full couple days, I don't know. And you're like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I know, it's okay. But here's what I would say. Um, in the words of uh, Wendell Berry, endure the risk of amateurism. Endure it. It's okay for you to not know exactly what to do. If you, if you, need, if you need words, take some from the scriptures. Take the prophet Samuel, just sit still and just say, here I am, Lord, speak, and then wait. I, I don't know what's more loving and like an expression of love to one that you love than sitting, waiting quietly. That is a deep expression of love. And that is you expressing love to Jesus. And, and, and when you go there and you do it, like when you sit in that stillness and you sit in that quiet and you're like, nothing is happening. Yeah, I, that's what's gonna happen sometimes. I, what I'm trying to say is, is don't be discouraged by boredom. See boredom as your purification. That's the trouble with Christians is they don't recognize that boredom is a form of purification. Our souls are overstimulated and we need to come out of that. And the same way parents would look at little ones and the little one is saying, I'm so bored. And the parent wants to say sometimes, well, you need to learn to be bored, right? Figure it out. Well, take your own advice. Take your own advice, right? Take your own medicine. Don't be discouraged when you're bored. Don't be discouraged that you don't have deep revelations all the time. 
that's okay. We live in that ordinary space of not always having deep revelations. Remember, like I said, it's an act of waiting. And an act of waiting is not an act of winning. It's just not. It's a form of love and trust. It's a deep form of obedience. And so as we come to the table this morning, this table is a place to remember that Jesus came not for the righteous, as he says. He says he came for sinners. He came for failures. He came for people like me and you who have a deep feeling of incompetence and a deep feeling of I'm not sufficient at this. I don't know exactly what I'm doing. And we, when we stay there, stay there, cling right there, that's where he meets us. He doesn't meet us in our pride. He meets us in our brokenness. That's what the, that's what the table is for. Sinners, strugglers, who are looking to Jesus for help and for salvation and for for rescue. This bread, as we remind you each week, represents Christ's body broken for you. And this cup of wine represents Jesus' blood poured out and shed for me and for you and for the sins of this world. And so if you're invited to come forward and take part, if you're a Christian, which means someone who is proclaiming Jesus as Lord, someone who is trying to yoke themselves to Jesus, someone who's trying to struggle through their, fe- their, their, their feelings of failure and incompetence and clinging to Jesus. If that is where you're at, you're invited to come forward, taking a piece of the bread and dipping it in the wine or the juice. I hope and pray that you'll attempt this in your life, that you'll put these rhythms in your life not as a way of getting out of community, but a way of being in it in a fuller, richer way. Let us pray. Father, take uh, what we've thought about this morning, take what we've um, heard from your word and press them into our hearts and make them real. Make it a part of our lives that we'll sit still and be quiet with you because in the end, all we have is you. In the end, all we have is your loving kindness that covers us. That is what will protect me. That is what will shield me. And I pray that that is what will guide me. We thank you um, for the sustaining, loving mercy that you continue to show to us. May we remember it as we each come to the table this morning and take part in remembering your work, not ours. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, that we ask, that we seek, and that we knock. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.